Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing and advertising. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught JP Hansen. As well as being a marketer and a lawyer, he is the CEO and co-founder of Rouser, an international strategic consultancy firm headquartered in Stockholm. He makes client brands better, not just bigger, and stresses that his singular goal is to build client profit. If this wasn't enough, he contributes to outlets such as The Drum and the IPA's F-Works, and is increasingly delivering entertaining, no-nonsense talks across the globe. JP says, The fundamentals of marketing remain relevant to this day, and the reasons for the practice remain the same. You do marketing to sell stuff. Welcome to the show, JP. Well, thank you very much, Giles. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, let's limber up the grey matter with our quick-fire questions. So, JP, coffee or tea? Coffee. I'm Swedish. Mac or PC? Um, Mac, not because I love Macs. I mean, God knows they're taking the piss with their product line recently, but I hate PCs. Football or rugby? American football. Book or Facebook? A book or Facebook? Book any day of the week. I don't, I don't Facebook. ABBA or Shabba? Um, ABBA. I'll have to. I mean, otherwise I'll get deported if I don't say ABBA. <laughs> Ritson or Sharp? Ooh, that's a loaded question. See, um, I recently sent my first column to, to Marketing Week and I'm doing a talk with Mark in March. Um, but, you know, on the whole, I, I'm probably closer to Sharp than to Mark, but I'll say, you know, it depends. Okay. And um, I'm hoping you'll be more conclusive with this one. Gary V or Gary Lineker? Uh, Gary Lineker in a day of the week and twice on Sundays. <laughs> now, before we talk modern day, can you tell us what was your first ever job and what was your first proper job? Right. So the first job I had, if you don't count, I suppose, like paper rounds and stuff, uh, was uh, writing an article for a magazine when I was 14, you know, whether you can consider that a job or just a gig, I don't know, but it does allow me to, to claim that I, in the loosest of terms, uh, have written professionally for going on 25 years now. Um, so that was the first one. Um, in terms of my first proper job, usually when, when people answer those kinds of questions, they're sort of quite sniffy about things like, for example, working for a supermarket as if there was ever, anything wrong with that. But um, in terms of what, uh led me to, to where i am right now so like you mentioned i am both a marketer and a lawyer so i worked at a law firm um mainly on projects that had to do with mergers and acquisitions and uh, corporate finance and corporate governance so that was sort of my first entry into i suppose the, the proper professional world if you like and how did that step from a legal environment to marketing happen um, there were a bunch of reasons. Uh, one of them had to do with the fact that I was in a very bad, I used to race motorcycles and I was in a bad, very bad crash in 2009, I think it was. And, um, I nearly died. Uh, and so I, I it tore my MCLs in both knees, my ACLs in both knees, crushed my right knee, broke my spine. It's it, a mess. And I remember being sort of in, in, in the intensive care unit and my boss calling me from law firm. She's like, okay, where are you? And I was like, oh, I'm in you know, ICU. And uh, I said, oh, okay, well, give us a call. We can walk again. 
And at that point, I was just like, well, maybe this isn't really for me. And then um, I sort of started doing some IP law and things like that. And then eventually that led me to academic brand research and ultimately to, to end up at Rouser. And uh, it's sort of, it's been the best decision of my life. I'm not, you know, nothing against lawyers. I just, I really like what I do now. So, so with a deliberate nod to Rouser, what is an unagency? So, so that line goes back to a talk I did in Dubai about two and a half years ago. So I was speaking at an event, at an event that sort of had to do with what was going to happen in the next four years in the UAE area. So basically the future, although sort of the near future. And as always, when you're talking about the future, you have people who talk about, you know, AI, or AR, VR, stuff like that. And I just pointed out the sort of astonishing coincidence that the future in a completely shocking turn of events just happened to be exactly what they were selling. You know, I mean, what are the odds, right? And so I think that's true for a lot of agencies as well. I'm not saying all agencies do it, and I'm not saying that agencies do it all the time, but we've all sort of come across agencies that demonstrably are doing things that are better for the agency than the client. And so because we at Rouser work sort of higher up the food chain, we tend to work with you know, sort of half marketing, half management, and it's to do with marketing alignment and, and sort of large strategic questions. Our interests are very much aligned with those of the client. So if the client does well, we do well. Um, and so it's just a classic positioning segment, really. We just position against the agencies. And, and although we don't consider ourselves an agency, we consider ourselves a consultancy, a lot of clients and prospective clients don't necessarily make that distinction. So by calling us the unagency, we sort of separated ourselves from the likes of basically the agencies. So yeah, so that was, anyway, that's the, the uh, origin of the line. Well, that's good. I think too often in positioning, when you see it in practice, is people do typically position themselves to or for something and, and, and completely miss the opportunity to position against something. Yes, uh, very much so, I would say. I mean, you don't have to go to the extreme length of something like uh, Burger King or just, you know, banging on about McDonald's these days as if, you know, they're talking about an ex-girlfriend or something. But um, one of the things that a lot of marketers miss is that brands don't act in a vacuum. They act in a competitive space, right? So what they do or the result of what they do is not just about what they themselves do, but it's also to do with what their competitors are doing. And a lot of positioning work is based on, well, you know, we want to be, you know, trait A, B, and C, but it might be the same things that all your competitors are standing for. So there's no differentiation. Now, of course, the jury is very much out on whether differentiation really matters to the extent that we believe it does or some believe that it does. But nonetheless, positioning needs to be relative to something else, uh, I would say. And, and you mentioned that typically you operate, I think you said higher up the food chain, if I, if I recall. Yep. It's therefore no surprise that your own unagency or, or consultancy manifesto mm -hmm. is framed as a opportunity to get marketing back to the boardroom yeah so um what we're seeing and i think that this is a, a universal problem at least from our experience is that the marketing department is starting to get detached from the sort of business context in which it acts and that of course is an issue because um if what you're doing is not relevant to the business as a whole, as a whole inevitably you're going to get a box full of crayons because you've been reduced to the coloring in department. And that's often what we see. Um, ultimately, as, as you mentioned in the introduction, marketing is about increasing sales. And 
basically solving business problems. It's not a fine arts project. And marketers have to be aware of that. You know, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you're preaching to the converted here. I think we've always been very aligned with your way of thinking. And the talk you referenced um, in the introduction that you had to give predicting the future of marketing and of the industry. Was that difficult to put together, given that we agree the fundamentals of marketing remain the same that they always have? Um, no, not really. I mean, the thing that a lot of people don't seem to understand about fundamentals and, and perhaps strategy especially is that it allows you to do all the other stuff. I mean, if you do your strategy properly and you sort of discover that the best solution or the best tool um, for you to achieve whatever objectives that you've set um, happens to be, let's say, artificial intelligence, then I have absolutely nothing against it. Hell, I don't care if it's influencer marketing, if you arrive at that conclusion in the right way. But the fact of the matter is that all this stuff that keeps on changing, the, you know, the tech or uh, what people are perceived to like, although you know what they actually like tends to be the same, but um, perhaps mainly the, the MarTech stuff, but that thing can change all the time. That's perfectly fine. It's, that's just executional stuff. It's just tools. The fun yeah. of, of defining and discovering what tools to use, that's, you know, that's sort of universal and, and consistent across time. So the tactics evolve and change. Can you tell everyone listening what a strategy is then? Right. So um, in most businesses, you need basically an architectural plan of sorts. Uh, if you are going to build something, a company or a brand or whatever it might be. Uh, and if you don't, either because there is none in place or, which is also often the case, it's not communicated properly within the organization. Basically, it's like an, asking a bunch of builders to erect an apartment block equipped with only with a hammer, a couple of nails, and sort of the vague idea of the concept of housing. And so what a strategy is can be defined in basically a number of different ways. We like to define it as sort of a general framework that provides guidance for critical actions to be taken to achieve an end. But of course, that's a bit of a mouthful. The thing is about strategy is that it, it can be differently defined depending on where it sits and what I like to call the strategy hierarchy. And what I mean by that is that within an organization, you have different levels of strategy. So typically, you're going to have corporate strategy at the top if you have multiple businesses, or you're going to have a business strategy if you only have the one. And then beneath that, you have multiple layers of strategy, right? So you have your um, brand strategy or your, mar or your strategic priorities. Uh, then you have your marketing strategy and so on and so forth. And then you sort of go all the way down to, I suppose, advertising strategy or campaign strategy. And the further down you get, right, the more prescriptive the strategy can be because it works or it's intended to work or be executed across a shorter time frame. And what is absolutely essential, and this is one of the things, going back to what I said before, but it's one of the things that a lot of marketers miss, is that you have to be aware of these layers. And you have to at least understand how the layer sort of above you works and what it does. Because that creates alignment and it, it ensures that what you're doing is actually relevant to the organization as a whole. I mean, that's not to say that every marketer has to read the collected works of Michael Porter or um, know, you know Richard Rumold's good strategy, bad, bad strategy, like the back of their hand. They don't need to know everything there is to know about business strategy, but they need to know enough to understand their own, if that makes sense. To borrow Mark Ritson's term, he, he frequently refers to market research as the map um, yeah. to which plan, activity, 
again, you use a term that I've heard a few times, which is tactification, which am I right in thinking you would see that as the last phase of putting a plan together for say the next 12 months for one of your clients the the strategy and the research that that precedes it it identifies the appropriate tactics yes absolutely so um your bog standard marketing strategy is going to be 12 months typically um it the first stage is always going to be diagnostics you need to understand what's actually happening uh in the marketplace then off of that you can do things like uh, you know, your objectives, what are we trying to do? Um, how much reach can we afford? Um, you can also, I mean, if you're going with, with the old sort of Cotharian uh, view, you can you do STP, so your segmentation, targeting, positioning. Um, that may not be as important as some would believe. I mean, especially if you're sort of in the, the Ehrenberg Bass Institute school of thought. But point being that you need to define what you're trying to achieve, basically. And once you've done that, then you can look at the tactics and the tools needed to achieve what you're trying to achieve. And then, you know, you get agencies involved and all these kinds of things. But tactification is basically where you you start by using a, a, a specific tactic. So you go, okay, we need to do marketing. Yes, that's Facebook ads, right? Or yes, that's VR or whatever, right? Well, you don't know that because you haven't done your strategy. If you use strategy first and you sort of discover that, yes, for this specific thing, we need to do comms. I mean, there are other tactics outside of comms, of course. Um, but yes, we need to do comms, and within comms, we need to do Facebook ads. That's perfectly fine. But you can't just go, oh, yes, we need to do marketing. Marketing equals Facebook. Because, you know, it's just, it's putting the, the sort of the cart before the horse. And, and um, even if the, the horse can sort of push the cart forward, it's, its view is just completely obfuscated. And is that, um, in your experience, do you, think, do you think that's true of most businesses and certainly most marketers is they lack either a marketing strategy in itself or they lack a broader understanding of that hierarchy of strategy that you've just, just explained or both? I, yeah, I think that um, the big mature brands, uh, they do understand marketing strategy. I mean, if you go into, let's say, let's say P&G, uh, you know, they're going to know it by heart, of course. Um, but if you look at your normal kind of brand, then one, typically they're not that strategically matured. They may not even have a proper business strategy in place. That's something that we see quite a lot. Um, and But the main thing, I think, is that detachment that I mentioned, that you just mentioned, whereby they forget the business context in which they act. Uh, and they just go about doing things that are completely nonsensical for the business at whole. Uh, and that creates all kinds of sort of silo formations. And, um, you know, when you award budget, for example, based on performance, which is one of those things that, that people do, and it's not necessarily tied to the overall organization, then you're going to create incentives for, for all kinds of you know, teams within your marketing department do all kinds of weird stuff. So, for example, your email marketing department might just spam people in order to get more conversions and thereby, thereby more budget space. Is that in the interest of the company? Probably not. Is that in the interest of the brand equity? Definitely not. Um, so, yeah, again, you they have to understand that and you have to have a CMO in place who understands that and sometimes they don't. Why do you think the marketing department increasingly has become more of a colouring in department, as you so wonderfully put it? Um, I think that a lot of it has to do with marketing becoming essentially not marketing, but communications. 
and so you don't have a chief marketer, a marketing officer, you have a chief communications officer. Um, and when you, you're basically defined as where you just do the comms, then it, it, is, it, it becomes basically the coloring in department because everything else is already done. You know, you've done your product development, you've done your price strategies, you know where to, you know, open your new stores. Um, all those, all that stuff has already been done. So now we just need to communicate to the market. That is almost, you know, per definition, a coloring in department. And, um, you know, I think one of the, there are, I'm sure there are different reasons why that is. I think perhaps the lack of training is, is one of the reasons. Um, but also, I, I just I think that a lot of CMOs are reluctant to uh, trust uh, marketers to do much more, to be perfectly honest, because, you know, they have to answer to the rest of the board. Mm. Um, and and that's I think that's an issue as, as well, a common issue anyway. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that the, the trust probably doesn't exist through, I think you can blame the marketers as much as you can anyone up higher up the chain who has a perhaps negative view of the marketing department simply because, uh, as you mentioned earlier, you've got this tactification going on mm. where marketers are either sending emails to get the conversion rate or the open rate or whatever metric they want to use to hit their goals. And, and hopefully most of them know deep down that it's not the right way to build a brand or build a business, but that's not really what they're being judged on perhaps no exactly and, and i mean we make the point and this is a management point but it applies quite well to marketing is that organizations are largely chain linked right so because they're chain linked the overall strength of the chain is not improved until every sort of link is and marketing is often a weak link unfortunately it really should be what ties the entire organization or the entire link together because it applies to or concerns so many other things you know product development price setting uh distribution whatever it might be but go to uh, most of the companies out there today and let's say you go into the r d department or your product development department and you go hey uh why don't you talk to marketers about this why isn't marketing involved i mean you're, you're gonna get laughed out of the room yeah and and so what inevitably happens is that your sales department will promise one thing and your, you know, your marketing department will promise something else. And then you have a bunch of R&D guys who have to sort of live up to those promises. And of course, they can't do that. So there is a huge benefit to actually allowing or not allowing, but encouraging people to, to, to speak to one another. But, you know, internal comms is always a problem, always a problem. And I think from the other direction, too, I've I've worked with and met marketers more so in more complex B2B businesses mm. who don't only lack the understanding of the pricing strategy of the business they work for, but in some instances, admittedly few, they don't even know the price of the service that they're trying to market. Yeah, I mean, it, if you work for, uh, if you work as a marketer, you're, you probably need to know, you know, at least the basics, like your profits and losses and things like that but but oftentimes again because they're only concerned with comms they just they don't do that there's you know they have to produce content or um, they have to create campaigns or whatever it might be and it's just they're only concerned with that and i think one of the problems or one of the reasons why potentially anyway is that marketers are hired largely a specialist these days so you don't get the generalists and why well there it's easier to hire a specialist it's easier easier to place a specialist 
So if you're a recruiter, for example, it's a lot easier to go, well, this person is a social media wizard or whatever, uh, as opposed to, well, this person knows a lot of things. Um, Okay, so what are they good at? Well, probably all of them, but we're not really sure. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, And so that also becomes a problem. And then because if you only have specialists, then you need to have a bunch of people on and you can't afford to have a bunch of people on. So you have to make do with what you have and you have to make sacrifices and so on and so forth. Yeah, or at the very least, you need someone to connect all the dots and join everything up that's happening if it is so is- in, in, in such isolated mm. um, departments. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, on top of that, you have the problem of CMO tenure, which is very short. So if you have a new boss and you know you're going to have a new boss every you know year and a half or so, then perhaps it's less of an incentive for you to actually do what you're told to. You know, because you know the guy's going to be replaced or the, the girl's going to get replaced in you know, a year and a half anyway. Um, and so, of course, that also plays into the whole short-term problem. Uh, it, yeah, because, yeah, marketers know that if you just inflate your numbers short-term, it's going to look good on your CV and you can move on to the next thing. You know, what happens to the brand? Who cares, right? They plow all their efforts into into activation and get that immediate lift and, and look good and move on. But um, mm. in the, in I think, early 2018, there was, in my opinion, an alarmingly misguided um, mm-hmm. uh, or stupid, really, article titled Why David Ogilvy Must Die that popped up in the drum. And while I was still repeatedly counting to 10, you took your pen out and wrote a stunning response, which, to paraphrase, suggested the opposite. And, and again, just reiterated that the fundamentals are as true now as, the, as they ever have been. Well, yeah, first and foremost, it's very, very kind of you to say so. Um, my problem was that I have nothing against... Uh, What's called David Baldwin, I think his name was. Personally, I mean, we had a talk after after my thing was posted. Um, I know that a couple of other people, Brayton Bird, if I'm or if I'm not completely mistaken, really tore him to pieces. But again, nothing against him. But his his article was pure nonsense. And I just, I basically what I did was I I just broke down his arguments and and proved that he was just talking out of his ass. And it was the usual shtick that we've seen, you know, <laughs> time and time again. You know, it's millennials, it's people don't buy stuff anymore. They just buy hyper-relevant things. And it's about hitting the people with the right message at the right time and yada, yada, yada. And it's just like, well, and, you know, one of the sort of uh, rhetorical questions that I asked in my article was just like, what consumer will buy a product that's not relevant to them? No one. I mean, it has to be relevant, on you know, in one way or another. Um and he made a lot of points that were either completely banal or just completely misguided. And, you know, it was, it was, that was quite an easy job to, to break that down, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, and it, and it wasn't a particularly heavy response, but it was certainly very intelligently put together and articulate. And as I say, I was still raging. But I must stress, this wasn't, I wasn't intending to ask that as a, as a witch hunt, but I do think it's synonymous with the state of marketing today in as much as a lot of people do shout things like this, which clearly are blatantly yeah, not true. Yeah, and, and that's one of the my biggest beefs with marketers is that they have a tendency, and not all obviously, but there's a frequent tendency to look at things, essentially reports or articles, and just you look at the headline and you make up all kinds of conclusions. And millennials is one of those things. Because millennials as a group is... It's so diverse, you know, because you're talking about people from all over the planet being born, what, between 1980 and 2000, a bit depending on who you ask, but broadly speaking. 
So that means that you're going to find everything from kids, you know, almost barely out of high school in, say, rural China to people, you know, fully grown adults with mortgages and kids and career, careers in like downtown Manhattan. And what you're saying is, is that th- these people should want the same things and basically think the same things. And it's, that's just nonsense. Clear, it's, it's nonsense. But because they are so diverse, you can sort of cherry pick what you're looking for, which ex- explains why when you look at articles about millennials, you know, they're only concerned with purpose. They're not concerned with purpose. They're only concerned with money. They're not concerned with money. They're completely, uh, you know, not interested at all in politics, but they're really interested in politics and so on and so forth. It's kind of like the gift that keeps on giving, which is why it's completely nonsense. Yeah. Well, I, I should I should also mention that as well as being a marketer and a lawyer, you're a comedian because um, you've got a you've got a millennial. Oh joke, no, no, that's I, yeah, I that's admire. not mine. I'm not sure where that thing originates, but uh, I know that Mark has done on stage a couple of times, and I think a couple of others. But the joke is just how many marketers does it take to screw in a light bulb? And the answer is millennials, because the answer to every question in marketing is fucking millennials. Yeah. <laughs> so where can we find the answer? So I know um, already that, like us, you're a fan of the you know, long and the short of it and various studies from, from Bennett and Field. For those listening who aren't familiar with that work, can you explain a bit more about that and their yes, findings? Yes, absolutely. So um, if you have no idea what we're talking about, I would highly recommend that you uh, look up a book, a book called The Long and the Short of It by um, Peter Field and Les Bennett. They've done other stuff since, uh, uh, media and focus and, and effectiveness and context, for example, but start with the long and short of it. And basically, their work revolves around balancing short-term activation and long-term brand building. Um, what we're seeing in general is that marketers are far too focused on the short-term stuff. But unfortunately, what that does it is that it completely undermines the long-term profitability uh, potential of the brand. So by doing the things very sort of short term, you're actually screwing up your potential to do better things long term. There are a couple of concerns, but there are certain things I I have a couple of reservations about their work. Um, And I think you should be aware of them as well. But firstly, they're basing the research on um, IPA effectiveness awards. Now, these awards, because there are other awards that are sort of a bit, you know, not as serious, but they're really well judged. A lot of modeling and a lot of proper analysis, but nonetheless, the only data that they have is from the top performing brands, right? And the problem with that is, of course, that it doesn't say whether the poorly performing brands are doing the same thing. Now, to their credit, they're absolutely aware of this and they're sort of working to fix that, but I think that's something that you should be aware of because one of the problems with that is that you get very close to, to halo effect territory and it's something that I bang on about you know all the time about uh, on Twitter but basically in so many words just to sort of briefly explain what a halo effect is it's it's a cognitive bias that leads us to make specific inferences uh, on the basis of general impressions and we basically do that to reduce cognitive dissonance or if I you know if I'm to put it in in plain English we judge books by the cover basically so if we're being exposed to single positive and negative traits, such as a physical appearance, we make all kinds of, uh, or, or rather, it leads us to, to sort of interpret things about this person accordingly. So once we've done that, you get confirmation biases and things like that. So if I were to describe someone to you, and let's say that it's slightly overweight, greasy guy in his early 20s, 
um, leather jacket, tattoos all over, uh, and a long beard, right? You're not going to go, oh, that sounds like a CEO. But he very well could be. You're just basing that off of essentially his overall appearance. And when it comes to business, there's absolutely nothing more attractive than a good result. And so if you look at, I mean, if you want to sort of look at what this looks like in practice uh, and sort of have, have a bit of fun, go to any Harvard Business Review article or most sort of um, business analyses and things like that, and you discover quite quickly that the companies that are performing well, are, you know, highly and just doing well, they're often argued to have, you know, visionary leaders or amazing culture or, or you know, great strategies or whatever. And then once performance inevitably sort of goes down, because performance is really difficult to maintain, those very same traits are all of a sudden considered lacking. So when things are going well, brands are, you know, like customer-centric, for example, or um, you know, they're staying true to their core products. And then once they're doing badly, uh, all of a sudden, you know, they're neglecting their customers, for example, or failing to innovate is another one. And of course, their approaches haven't really changed, you know, if at all. Um, because why would you change a winning recipe? If you're doing well, you're probably going to be doing more of that, right? But mm. so what happens is, is essentially is that a lot of people judge decisions post hoc, which is just completely bonkers. It's kind of like asking a guy who just lost a bet on a football game, you know, whether he would make the same bet had he known then what he knows now. And of course he wouldn't. I mean, it's just nonsensical. But I went a bit off piece there, I suppose. But anyway, back to marketing. The thing about Bennett and Fuel stuff is if you only look at the best performing brands and, and you know, from a marketer's perspective, you're going to come up with two conclusions, right? Most marketers will anyway. The first one is marketing cost it, right? If you see a good performing brand, it's like, yeah, the, you know, marketing cost that, right? And the second thing, of course, is that because the brand is performing well, then the marketing must have been good. And that's not necessarily true because there's a lot of things that go into performance, right? And not least, randomness or luck, which I suppose could be defined as randomness in your favor. And marketing is definitely part of that. Uh, it's not the only part. That's a thing to remember. So even though Bennett and Field based their research on a lot of really good campaigns and, and I don't know, it's like 11,000 strong or something. You have to remember that what they're looking at is basically the top performing brands. That's it. You, of course, you can learn a lot from that, but you have to be aware of it. Um, but my second reservation is perhaps a bit more, you know, without tooting my own horn, but it's perhaps a bit more important. And it's something that I tried to point out in the IPA article that you mentioned in the beginning, and that's there is no universal definition of what effectiveness is. Because what Bennett and Field are talking about is marketing effectiveness as opposed to marketing efficiency. So effectiveness tends to be long-term stuff. Efficiency is the short-term stuff. Efficiency is essentially ROI or ROMI, whereas effectiveness, at least in their view, is very large business effects, which is probably what, what I mean when I say effectiveness, and I'm sure you do as well, and probably what most of the people listening to, the, to this podcast do. But the fact of the matter is that that's not what all people mean by effectiveness. And of course, that's a problem, because then all of a sudden you're talking past one another, and you know, you're not comparing apples to apples, mm -hmm. you're comparing apples to oranges, so sometimes you're just 
comparing apples to completely made up entities like unicorns or I don't know, millennials. But um, <laughs> you have to be aware of that. And, and my point, and it also goes back to the stuff when I mentioned about uh, the strategy hierarchy, is that when you work with the marketing effectiveness and you need to work with marketing effectiveness and the long-term stuff, I mean, again, going by what they're doing uh, and their work, you have to define it based on what is strategically relevant for your organization. And you need to as well keep the, the long term in mind. And that's easier said than done. Because if you look at something like uh, Next, I think it was, for example, they define effectiveness as um, internal rate of return. That's a short term metric. So it's a bit of a self fulfilling prophecy. But you need to define it according to, to your conversation or your organization. So you know what you're talking about. I'm sad to say that's probably going to mean you have to talk to the finance department and the CFO. And sometimes when I talk, <laughs> uh, tell clients that, especially marketers, they're sort of, they have this look on their face like a kid who was just told he couldn't have dessert. But if you're, if you're looking at, if you're trying to define the long-term KPI that are most relevant to your organization, the finance guys are going to know it. Right? They may not understand the, the importance of building your brand long-term, those kinds of things. But if you talk in terms of money and investments and ensuring that we actually increase our baseline sales growth and essentially uh, gain market share, then most people are going to listen. But anyway, I, I went off piece there, but, but hopefully that answered a bit of you, Kristen. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. If there's, if there's no recognized and, and consistent definition mm. of, of, of effectiveness, then, then how, can you, how can you compare? It's no different really to the, to the murky world of, of digital measurement and, and, and what defines an impression, for example. Yeah. But when you go into businesses, um, given the immediate, I suppose, easy to perceive as positive mm -hmm. uplift in marketing activation, and therefore some businesses may or some CEOs may put pressure on plowing more investment and marketing resource into the mm. short term. How do you put a case forward for the long term? Mm. Because I think that's probably something that a lot of businesses and, and people find themselves having to fight for. Yes. Yeah, so uh, the reason why you can't do a bunch of short term stuff really is has to do with um, it's called the, the negative binomial distribution curve. Basically, you should, by the way, if you talk to Weimar Snyders about this, he, he's the banana guy. But it looks like a banana. And it's, it, if you've read How Brands Grow, you're going to be aware of this. If you've read Eat Your Greens, you're going to be aware of this. But basically, most of your buyers are going to be light buyers. That means you're going to probably see that they buy your brand maybe once every two years or so. And what happens if, if you just do the short-term stuff, a couple of things are going to happen. Firstly, we're, just, we're going to hit more heavy buyers than light buyers and they're not going to help your brand grow basically um the second thing is that the light buyers that have sort of imminent purchase decisions you're just going to pull them up in time so and they're not going to buy again later you're just going to buy earlier which means you're going to get sales tip afterwards and not only that but most of the short-term stuff that you do is um, based on things like promotions and and you know buy now buy now buy now so you're training your consumers to uh, essentially buy it whenever you tell them to buy or well tell them to buy but whenever you have a promotion basically run a promotion and of course that's going to screw up your margins it's not going to be very helpful for your market share because what's the first thing or rather what what happens when you run a promotion and you get a bunch of sales, right? You increase your sales, right? Your margin of crap, but you increase your sales. But what happens next? 
your competitor does the same thing to you. Because again, brands don't act in a vacuum. They act in a, act in a competitive space. Okay, so your competitor does the same thing. And what does that mean for your sales? Well, they're going to be they're going to be stealing sales from you. And not only are they going to be stealing sales, they're going to be stealing sales that were supposed to happen at full price. So it's like a double whammy. So when you focus on all the short-term stuff, what we see is you get a sort sort of a sales uplift and then it goes back to zero. So you have to do another one and it goes up and it goes back to zero and you have to do another one and another one and another one and another one. As opposed to when you do the long-term stuff, um, whereby you increase your, your baseline sales growth and, and you get, for everything that you do, you get a slight uplift and then a slight uplift and a slight uplift, but it builds over time. And all of a sudden, that long-term stuff is doing a lot more for your sales than the short-term stuff ever could. And I mean, the long-term stuff in, in the research, going back to Benetton Field, but it drives 460% more market share growth than the short-term stuff does. Do you want to grow your market share? Yeah, most people want to do that. Cool, do you want to make money? Yes. Then we need to do the long-term stuff and we need to do the broad reach stuff. We just have to. That's it. And equally, the, the short-term stuff tends to commoditize whatever it is you are your yes product. that is absolutely true so you know that goes back to how we define brand i suppose and, and aiken bomb's definition of brand but um in so many words a brand is basically a commodity plus brand equity right and when you're like like you very rightly say when you do the short-term stuff what you're telling consumers especially if you run a promotion says forget all the other stuff about you know what we stand for or you know, all the benefits of our brand or our product, whatever it might be, buy us now because you can buy two for the price of one. That's a commodity. It's You're reducing your brand to a price in relation to the product. That's it. So again, yes, you're absolutely right. You you sort of, you undermine the brand equity and you turn your, your product into a commodity. I noticed recently a, a debate which involved several people, a conversation around mind share versus market share can you explain what the difference is and the the significance so of each in theory i suppose how you could define it market share is basically how much of the market you own i mean how much of the total sales of the market are yours and and how much of them are you know your competitors basically uh, mind share in theory is how much if you think of your consumer's head as a bunch of essentially let's call it 100 different pieces how much of those hundred different pieces, how many of those pieces are yours, right? And the idea is that by increasing mind share, you can increase market share, basically, because if, you're con if your consumers or buyers are thinking about you more, um, they're probably going to buy you more. That's the idea anyway. Unfortunately, what we see a lot of the time is that the mind share, um, it follows the market share. So the big brands have the most mind share. It's kind of why they're big. And it's not the other way around, if that makes sense. Because at the end of the day, consumers don't think about brands the way that marketers do. They're busy leaving, living their actual lives, right? Marketers, we work with brands. We have mm -hmm. to think about brands all the time. But if you work at you know, a cement factory or whatever it might be, um, you're not going to be thinking about Apple. You might be thinking about apples if you're having one for you know as a snack, but you're not going to think but thinking about Steve Jobs. But I mean, most brands, or at least people on Twitter, which is not of course synonymous with brands, but or marketing in general. But you know, you won't go a day without seeing some sort of reference to Apple and their mind share and their brand. But 
normal people don't think about that. No, that's a really, really good point. And it's one that, that, that we find ourselves making, that, that it's that indifference, really, that people have to, or likely to your brand or product, which is one of the yes, biggest Yes, it hurdles. goes back to, I mean, again, in the beginning, we mentioned Byron Sharp, and it goes back to his, his point, which is that basically you need to increase mental and physical availability, and that how easy it is to think of a brand once you make the purchase, and how easy it is, is it to actually make the physical purchase. So that's basically it. I think the two, again, if I just go back to the um, how I tried to trip you up earlier with my Ritson or Sharp question, I think clearly one, one I think is fair to say is more about being different. The other is about being more distinct. But crucially, that has the same effect when it comes to recall. Yeah, so what's really interesting share. about that as well is that Mark has sort of gone from saying that everything that Byron Sharp says is wrong. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I'm, I'm doing him a disservice because he hasn't been he's not that sort of binary mark um and um but he sort of he, his point now is that he takes the binet and field rule which is a 60 40 rule and uh again mark i'm sorry if i'm paraphrasing wrong here but his his take on it is basically you have 60 percent long term 40 percent short term that's the binet gold standard rule of thumb it doesn't apply to every uh, brand every category and so on and so forth but as a rule of thumb that's it and he says, okay, so that means you do 60% sharp stuff and 40% rich and stuff. So 60% broad reach things and then 40% sort of narrow targeting stuff, which I think it's easy, fair enough. Now, asking the general public for input on anything is notoriously fraught with danger, but clearly Boaty McBoatface wasn't enough to deter us. So we've invited a couple of questions in from our listeners, starting with Natalie Sutton, who has asked... Do you have any tips for briefing agencies? Right. So I, firstly, I think that's a very good question because uh, briefing seems to me to be one of the sort of lost arts of marketing. Um, usually what happens is that brands either, I suppose you could call it underbrief. So they just go, hey, we have 100 grand. What the hell should we do? Or they sort of overbrief and they write sort of a, a war and peace style document, you know, about the brand purpose and the brand statement and the brand voice and the brand essence and, you know, whatever the hell it might be. And then, of course, adding insult to injury, they add sort of a slight hint at what they think the solution should be. Um, so, again, I, I think it's a very good question. Um, the first thing you need to do, and I'm sorry to bang on about strategy, but you have to ensure that you have a marketing strategy in place. Please bang on about strategy. There aren't enough people doing that. If you are using the help of an agency, you're basically you're looking for a tactical solution to help you reach a strategic objective. And if you don't have a strategic objective in place, the first thing you need to do is, you know, you have to set a strategic objective. That, of course, means you have to do your strategy. And what did we say about the strategy hierarchy? The marketing strategy is subservient to the business strategy. So that ensures that eventually you're, campaign or whatever it is that the agency is going to do it's actually in line with what the business is trying to do um so that's the first thing if i haven't got a marketing strategy you know go back to square one and do that um when it comes to the actual briefing process for me personally the first rule is uh clarity and simplicity and it, it was like something you know speaking of twitter uh someone wrote on twitter the other day uh, that when you get everyone to agree on what the advertising should do, it becomes much easier for them to agree on what it should say. I think it was Jason uh, Fox, maybe, who, who said that. If it wasn't, I'm sorry. But um, So basically, you define in 
very easy to understand language. Uh, not marketing or, you know, the kind of marketing cliches that people tend to bring up like brand passion or brand love or whatever, but also avoid the sort of management lingo nonsense. Um, so basically you define, so what's the brand's position within the market? Where do you want to go? What business problem do you need to solve in order to get there? Um, what tools are available to work with? What are the distinctive assets? You know, if you have brand positioning, what's that? Of course, what budget is there, both in terms of time and money? And of course, as well, remember to put the person they need to contact if there are any questions along the way. But don't underestimate the importance of defining the problem. Advertising, of course, is ultimately about solving a business problem, right? It's, again, it's not a fine arts project. So because you're dealing creative types, they're not necessarily all the time the sort of most business savvy of people. So sometimes you need to kick them up the proverbial a bit. Um, but it is important that they get that part. They're trying to solve a problem. And then once you feel that everyone within the room understand what the problem is that you're trying to solve, that they understand what the most important stuff is and um, what the objective that they're trying to reach is, then just get out of their way. Um, you have to keep in mind that the agency, if you're talking about a, uh, well, media agencies as well, but they're experts, right? And for advertising to work, it has to be noticed. And they're going to know how to make it noticed. You don't, because if you did, you do it in-house, but you don't, so you're not, you know, you're not able to do that. So provide them what they need to sort of understand in order to help you fix your problem, and then just get out of the way. Make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. The only thing I would add um, is, is that, well, not add even, is to reiterate your points about keeping it simple. Mm. I've seen too many briefs that are so complex where I think the person writing the brief was unsure what to include, so they include everything. Yes. No, we should, I mean, brie briefing is a short, or, or short, but briefing is a conversation. It's not a speech. Mm. You could put it like that, right? Uh, and, and so you're absolutely right. Just keep it simple and, and ensure that people actually understand what you're talking about. And, we, and again, we should stress that it's, it's difficult to write something simply. I know um, in, in our previous episode mm. with, with Richard Shotton, he, he referenced something I hadn't heard of, which was Churchillian drift. Yeah. And I think I've certainly seen this associated with Winston Churchill, but in reference to a very lengthy memo he once wrote, and he started the memo by apologizing that he hadn't written a short memo, but he didn't have time to write a short one. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely, it's, it's, I think it was Dave Trotter once said that what you're looking for is simple words and big ideas, not big words and simple ideas. Dave Trot is, 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 you know, he's got so many stories around particularly this, this topic and, and more so. And I've heard him say on numerous occasions that it's, it's, it's stupid people confuse complicated with clever yeah, um, it takes real intelligence to get things back to simple. So um, that's yeah, the only thing. Absolutely, only yeah. thing I'd add. But yeah, that was a great answer. And 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 a second question we've had in from Richard Chapman. He's asked, "How hard is it to accurately demonstrate marketing ROI?" Now, before you answer that, I think that's quite a complex question. So I would, <laughs> I certainly excuse you for ask answering this broadly. Yeah, I'll try to keep it simple then. Um, the, the simple answer is that it's a hell of a lot more difficult than people seem to understand or believe. Um, if you look at ROI or ROMI at its core, at its most basic, it's, it's quite a simple calculation, right? So you have your revenue increase or your sales increase uh, minus the marketing cost, and then you divide it by the marketing cost. That seems quite straightforward, right? 
Um, but then once you start to prod that a bit, it becomes quite complex quite quickly. So for example, if you're measuring marketing, um, what part of that revenue increase is one, down to marketing, and two, down to the marketing that you're measuring? Right? That's really difficult to, to actually figure out. Um, are you factoring in things like discounts? What about returns? How are you handling attribution without just sort of deferring to last touch attribution? What are the variable costs involved? Do you know those? Do you know what the non-controllable variables are? Well, probably not. And, you know, you have to factor those in. But have you? And what if you run the same campaign twice? Do you factor in the creative work in both calculations or just the one? So, again, just by sort of starting to prod it a bit and ask a, a few questions, all of a sudden that sort of slightly or rather straightforward, I should say, calculation turns almost impossible. So you have to basically define based on your uh, company what is most relevant to you and, and uh, what shortcuts are you allowed to take or what are things and factors that you're allowed to sort of ignore. Um, but ROI in general is, is, I see a lot of criticism of, R, of ROI, which is, I think, justified. Um, such as, for, for example, because it's tied to efficiency, it tends to correlate negatively with market share growth. But at the end of the day, if you're a marketer working today and you're looking to spend company money, there will be questions about ROI. So you kind of have to make do with what you have. But again, you need to ensure that it's sort of that, that your calculations are relevant to the organization as a whole. Because going back to the original question, it's really difficult to truly demonstrate marketing ROI. I mean, it's, I mean, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but in terms of just the pure math, again, the basic maths are easy. But when you start to look at what actually is involved in it, it becomes really difficult really quickly. Yeah, uh, agreed. I think it, does, it certainly does answer the question. And, and, and certainly, in my opinion, anyway, it's the correct answer, because I think so much recently, or certainly more recently in, in the, the last few years, that's tied to the analytics available through certain digital channels, mm -hmm. at first glance is perceived to be ROI, when in fact, what it's measuring often isn't ROI, but it's something that can be measured, therefore, it gives you a number, therefore, that number has meaning inside the boardroom or inside the, the, the business. Yeah, no, absolutely true. So the final part of the interview, uh, JP, I've got four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. Mm -hmm. So um, what advice would you give to your younger self? Um, it's one of those questions, I suppose, that, you know, hindsight bias is, is a problem. But um, if I had to do one thing differently, um, ending up in the same place, because, you know, we are the product of all our decisions. Um, I would probably not go to law school, even though that helps me greatly when I'm working with clients and, and working with C-suites and I understand uh, businesses in a slightly different way. Uh, I just, I really love sort of marketing and strategy and, and business strategy and those kinds of things. So I would rather probably be working uh, with those or I would have worked with that earlier in my career, so to speak. Mm. But rightly or wrongly, do you not think that your legal background gives you some immediate clout that um, it might not had you not held that qualification or that experience? And, and, and again, I'm not, I'd like to stress, I'm not, I'm not saying that's right, yeah. um, but I imagine in real life scenarios that that could be the case. Um, it may do. Um, 
I haven't really thought about it. I, I, I do notice that it, it does carry certain weight in certain circles, so to speak. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, it's not it's bad enough to be a marketer, but if you're also a lawyer, you're basically the devil in most people's <laughs> eyes. So, you know, I'm not sure how positive that is, but um, that's true. That's fair. You should be a parking attendant as well. Yeah, exactly. You know, go for the trifecta. Yeah. And if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be, and and why? Uh, the lack of critical thinking. Uh, we tend to take a lot of things basically on surface value and surface analysis, and it's absolutely. It's, nonsensical it's it's my biggest pet peeve is that people will believe anything you know um for example i read an article a couple of weeks ago and and they were talking about facebook ads what was their data source it was facebook what was the (laughs) conclusion that facebook ads are great and you just go you think really (laughs) and it's the lack of critical thinking is is so frustrating to me sometimes you know maybe that's being a lawyer that's why but uh yeah that's the big thing and are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners uh phil rosenzweig the halo effect if you haven't read how brands grow one and two you need to and uh eat your greens by weimer schneiders and company that's very good it's also one of the benefits of eat your greens is that they have a i don't know 30 authors or whatever so it's a bunch of chapters so you don't need to read through the entire thing. You can just, you know, pick and choose what you like and stuff. And it's, it's a brilliant book. Now, we always dedicate the show to someone um, and we bestow that honor to our guests. So over to you, JP. Uh, right. So I've spoken to the relevant parties and, and sort of was told not to do this the personal ways, rather <laughs> professionally. There are a bunch of people that I should mention, people like Weimer Snyder's. Uh, Freddie Kahlberg and, and uh, Kaveri Kalar. But I think if I had to dedicate to one person, it would be Mari Calder, uh, who's a strategy director at uh, Mediacom in Edinburgh, who's just had a bit of a tough time in life and recently had some really good news. So uh, I'm glad you dedicated to him. Brilliant guy, by the way. Absolutely brilliant. You should have it on the podcast. Awesome. I will do my best to get him on. Thank you, JP. So as a as a final call to action if if, please everyone if you've enjoyed this episode if you head over to our podcast homepage, we'll share the links to jp's brilliant manifesto some of the wonderful articles he's written um, and certainly the books you've recommended the halo effect eat your greens how brands grow and there's various links i can share to long and short of it and the work that you you mentioned earlier but how else would you advise that that people get more jp hansen uh, the, the easiest way is just to go on Twitter. I'm at uh, RouserJP, so that's R-O-U-S-E-R-J-P. Uh, I'm not too much on LinkedIn because I'd rather watch paint dry or, or sort of have my mouth testicles <laughs> and all those three, but, but Twitter is good. I'm on Get the, the fence, JP. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of LinkedIn. But uh, Twitter is probably the best way. And then you can catch me. I'm doing a lot of talks this spring. Uh, so I'm doing Reykjavik, Stockholm, uh, Brighton uh, for Media360 and then I'm doing Mumbai I think maybe Tel Aviv London and uh, Singapore probably so if I'm in the area you can also but, I mean of course I'm going to mention that on my Twitter but but uh, if there's a marketing event uh, you know I might might turn up I'm, I'm kind of like you know all over the place at the moment so yeah yeah well, well we'll stick a link to your Twitter on our links as well so everyone can can find you easily oh, um Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us, JP. It's been an absolute 
pleasure to talk and, and I hope to see you in the UK soon. Oh, pleasure's been all mine. I hope so too. And finally, thank you to everyone who's willingly let their ears be bent by us for the last hour or so. And a special thank you to the dozens of you listening who have shared the pod along with your kind words to your own networks. If you want to get in touch with the show and you have any questions you want to pose to future guests, you can get in touch via the website, which is calltoaction.co. Try and I try and I try.